This episode of Earl Grey is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. My name is Matt Frewer. I played Rasmussen on Star Trek The Next Generation, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome to another cup of Earl Grey, Trek FM's dedicated podcast to the next generation. I'm your host, Joe Keegan, and joined with me as usual today is the outstandingly stellar Amy Nelson and the Ozerian philosopher that is Justin Ozer. How are you both today? Doing great. Thank you so much. Very excited to be talking next gen with you guys, as usual. Mm-hmm. Uh, Justin? Uh, thank you. You've given me my own branch of philosophy, adjective. maybe? That's yeah, adjective. Yeah, Ozerian. <laughs> Ozerian philosophy. I know I've been working on my adjectives <laughs> since all the mad lips. Awesome. Yeah, doing great. Uh, you know, I, I think we're going to talk about it every week for a while. As we record this, we've had two episodes of Picard drop, and it's very exciting. So... Uh, yeah, just excited about that. But also, it's great to talk about the next generation and the topic we have today. Yes, I have a problem with the beginning of Picard. This is the not the place two. to... Okay, we can talk about it elsewhere. Just really briefly, like Mars goes off screen to the left, then appears from the bottom. <laughs> like it's totally confusing my brain and there's no spinny camera thing. It's like there's two Marses. In the same shot. Um, that's how they edited it. It's I didn't go, even notice watch that. Watch it. To watch, oh, it's doing this. <laughs> annoying totally threw my brain. You off, huh? Yes, completely. Okay. My stickler for the details. I'm turning into one of these really grumpy Star Trek fans. I don't think so. It just like trolls the franchise. Oh, I'm not being that person. Anyways, um, we have some Babel Conference feedback from Earl Grey 309, which was our badass data moments. Amy, do you want to kick this one off? Yeah, we have Dennis Bellinger writes, in first contact when he smashes the plasma coolant tank and says, resistance is futile. Oh, but he says futile. futile, yeah. Yep, my bad. Also in Nemesis when he jumps from ship to ship. Well, Dennis, thank you for your comments. Uh, Those are great badass data moments. So we agree. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, Mm -hmm. one of them was my choice for him smashing the coolant tank. Just so many great data And the other was... Yeah, the other was Joe said when he was flying from so. ship That's to right. ship. So yeah. we got him. Oh, Superman-like, yeah. And I think in, uh, is it the intro to Earl Grey? We have the music from that scene when, when Data is jumping from one ship to another, right? Exactly, like, it, it is. You might be right, yeah. Awesome, cool. Yeah. All right, so we have Frosty Winnipeg who says, I'm in for giggles, so I'll just throw out season seven's masks. <laughs> and with a little laugh emoji. Um, yeah. That's that their actual good. name. Uh, that is the actual name they use on 
Facebook? Really? On their awesome. birth certificate, okay. Frosty Winnipeg, okay. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that, that's pretty funny. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, we've talked about it here before. Amy and I really like masks quite a bit. We do. And we talked about it with Christopher D. Littlefield, and uh, I had to reply and say Masaka is waking, so... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I like it. I don't know if we've gotten your opinion on masks, but that we could probably have a whole episode where Joe talks about masks, right? Well, I keep on saying, what is moussaka? Moussaka, is that a Greek dish? The sun, oh. <laughs> no. Uh. It's a Greek dish like moussaka. No, not yeah. moussaka, nah, that's moussaka. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I just jumped into my food, always jumps into my brain. Apparently. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thanks for that, Frosty. Um, Jerry Gilbert Paduano says, just wanted to let everyone know Starfleet socks are a thing and I own them. Well, you're not alone there, Jerry. I own Starfleet socks too. I've also got some Spock socks or Spocks. Spocks. With um, sticky out ears, pointy ears on the side. Oh my goodness, how fun. Yeah, Yeah. And Jerry shared a a picture of his socks. They were very fun. I don't have Starfleet Mm -hmm. socks yet, but um, it's probably on the list somewhere. You get them in packs of three with the three different division colors, which is cool. Oh, that's nice. Very, very Mm -hmm. cool. Let's do it. We have Dan Gunther who writes in, Data arresting Riker at the end of Gambit. Quote, Data, he was joking. You know that, right? Data? That is a great pick. I love that it. That is a so really good funny. pick. I'm kind of disappointed in the three of us that we didn't. Yeah, that's, yeah. Get it. that's it was, fantastic. I love that. And, yeah. it's, and it's and it's the kind of thing where like you know Data is being like a stickler by the book, but I think he also knows that he's having some fun with Riker. So I think it's pretty cool for that. I think you might be right. Yeah. yeah. Well, we hope so because Data doesn't really understand humor. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he does a bit at this point. Well, that's season seven. So, okay. We also have Vera Bible who says, definitely instance of command. And thanks to Justin Ozer, I know the meaning of the title. Well, thank you. It's really thanks to Memory Alpha, but I'm glad I could find that and we could see what it means. Also, I agree with Amy Nelson. I'm a fan of all these cheeses everywhere. If I had to pick favorites, either Stilton or Burrata. Great episode, guys. I especially love the Mad Libs at the end. Warp and warp hard. Yep. Uh, <laughs> lots more part. We funny. had some fun stuff in the closing section. Uh, listeners, if you're not listening to that, you really should. So you're talking about favorite cheeses and we did a Mad Libs. And yeah, I was thinking about that during the week, like as a motivational thing, like when I had to go to work, I was like, warp and warp hard. And it helped me get through the day a little bit. Oh, awesome. I shouldn't, <laughs> I shouldn't do that. That would just make me drive faster. <laughs> yeah, don't yeah. do that. Good idea. To, to be clear, my <laughs> no. commute is walking up the stairs. So uh, no, no danger <laughs> oh, there yeah. for me. So that's not a commute, Justin. Um, it is. You. My legs are tired going up those stairs, Joe. So, listeners, today on Earl Grey, we have a super, very special guest, and it thrills me to introduce Dr. Erin McDonald, who is an astrophysicist, an aerospace engineer, and a, science, a Star Trek science consultant. Erin, welcome to Earl Grey. Hi, I'm really happy to be here. I know, weird. This is like my heart's like racing now. It's. <laughs> Almost terrifying. Wow. Oh, this is fun. So, um, first question, I suppose. Uh, who is Erin McDonald? Really? Tell us all about yourself in like maybe less than five seconds. Go. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's a really loaded question. I have so many yeah. hats. Um, so, mm-hmm. I, at my core, I'm an astrophysicist and a sci fi fan. So, I kind of like to joke that I'm a warp or I'm a rocket scientist by day and a warp drive expert by night. Um, because, you know, I do aerospace consulting. I did my PhD in astrophysics at the University of Glasgow. Woo-woo. Woo. And, um, 
and uh, and now I do consulting for science fiction. So I live out in Los Angeles, and as you mentioned, I just got hired this year to be the science consultant for the Star Trek franchise, which is so I'm really a warp drive expert now, <laughs> which is awesome. Like the whole franchise, like you are you are at. So if there's any hokey science anytime soon. We can, I know, I know I you're in LA somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, it's funny because, uh, people sometimes forget that shows take a long time to come out. So like I, I'm watching Picard with the rest of you, you know, that I, I did not touch Picard. And, and the important thing too, is that it's one of those things that I'm available to the franchise, whether they choose to listen to me or even ask for help is up to them. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, okay. okay. I got yeah. it. Let's actually uh, take a step back from that and tell us about your history with Star Trek as a fan of the franchise. Yeah, so I kind of started, I didn't really watch Star Trek as a kid. It wasn't until I was in college studying physics. There's a big intersection in that Venn diagram of physics, <laughs> physicists and Star Trek fans. And so at our parties, we would um, watch Star Trek. And that was my first like exposure. all the cool kids yeah <laughs> exactly yeah. and uh, that was my first exposure to um star trek in general and i mean i and i was drawn to it and then the night we all graduated with our undergraduate degrees was actually the midnight premiere of the 2009 kelvin film and so we all went to that and that was just kind of my first exposure to star trek fandom and that's when I was like, oh, these, this is my people. This is my crowd. <laughs> and I like this and I want more of this. And so that's when we uh, collectively, we started, my friends started to find conventions to go to. And the first one we all went to was Dragon Con. Now, Dragon Con has a big science, hard science component to it. They have these tracks and they have a space track and they have a science track. And so a couple years later, I started speaking at the space track just about my research and me being me, I started kind of branching out and, and talking about the science behind Star Trek and Star Wars and Mass Effect and all these other things and realizing that the audience for that was huge. So I started going to other conventions and doing this and I would meet writers and I would start kind of answering their questions on how science can work. So it kind of organically came into this with how to integrate science with science fiction. And concurrently, I was also a professor at the time and I found the power of using science fiction to teach science, where science, you're learning brand new stuff and you have no anchor for that. But if I say, oh, like these exoplanets that we're studying, that's like Luke Skywalker's home planet of Tatooine, which I know is not the franchise we're here to talk about today, but <laughs> it really resonated with the students. And they started asking really critical science questions where they would say, you know, hey, did you... Um, like, how could there be two stars there? How could there be like a desert planet? And, and asking the questions that you want a science class to ask. And so that's when I started to realize the power of using science fiction to teach science. And then when I moved out here to Los Angeles, I started, um, you know, I would meet and network and go to Star Trek things and, and meet other writers. And, and that's how I got looped in to do Star Trek Las Vegas, which is where we met. And, um, Speaking at that convention was just amazing. I actually had stress dreams for weeks leading up to my first Star Trek Las Vegas because I was so afraid it would be like, you are not a fan enough. It was the first like yeah. focused convention I'd ever uh -huh. been to. <laughs> it was 
was so stressful. Oh, wow. But it was beautiful and no one was like that. So it was a very long answer. But then I think um, that's where the franchise started. I mean, they've known for ages that there is so much passion that the fans have for science. Um, but then me being me, <laughs> that I'm also a huge fan of the franchise and being able to use Star Trek to teach real science is something that CBS and, and the franchise is very excited about. Yeah, I just want to say like one thing that, that you said about not necessarily being a fan as a kid. I know there are lots and lots of Star Trek fans who became fans as a kid. For me, I had very little awareness of it, so I found it later as well. Um, actually, more when I was about 30, <laughs> when the 2009 movie came out. So it had a similar impact, like, whoa, this is cool and this is interesting and let me see what else there is. So I just think it's maybe an underappreciated aspect sometimes, people that haven't been big fans since they were kids, but came to it later and are still like really enthusiastic about it. Yeah, Absolutely. And there, I mean, there are people probably right now who are like, yeah. you know, watching the first episode of Picard just because they're hearing about it. And that's their first exposure to Star Trek. Welcome to the team. <laughs> yeah, actually, um, you know, we had a watch party at, at uh, our house, my wife and I for Picard, and my wife's been a big fan since she was a kid. But we have some friends who some of them have a lot of experience with Star Trek, others have very little, and some of them hadn't even seen TNG. So it was just awesome. kind of interesting to see that. So for everybody, I think, there is some show that is their first experience. And for some people, it might be Picard, which I think is really cool. Yeah, yeah it's exciting. It's a really great community. I love it. Yeah, so open and welcoming. Um, last week when episode one came out, I um, I decided that I was going to show it in the theater at school in the big, on the big projector. So I invited all the staff and um, pupils along. And a lot of pupils thought they were coming to see Star Wars, which <laughs> much to my irritation. But I welcomed them nonetheless. So. <laughs> That was, really that was good fun. Introducing new people to the franchise. That's Absolutely. what we're there for, I suppose. So, Erin, you have to tell us a little bit more about consulting for Star Trek. Is there anything that you can share with us, or have you signed a million NDAs? I have signed a million NDAs. <laughs> yeah. And even, you know, the process of getting into this has been so up and down. It's very, it's Hollywood, you know, it's, it yeah, takes yeah. a lot of people to make this decision and it's a lot of, it's a big risk. It's the first time that they've done something like this, but it's also the first time that they've had, you know, five shows in production at once. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot of new ground here. But it's really exciting, you know, some shows are really reaching out and really excited to have this resource. And some are just like, oh, cool. Yeah, we'll call you if we need you. All right. Awesome. You know, I'm not here to. And and that's where I have found my success in Hollywood is that I'm not here to say science says no. <laughs> Go away. I'm here to say like, all right, we're going to yes and your script. Like if you want to do this wibbly wobbly nonsense time thing, like. Timey-wimey nonsense, yeah. Let's make it work, you know? Um, yeah. It's just make sure you don't say anything wrong. And that's that's the important thing. Mm. And that's where I think writers love that creative process. Um, and that's, that's what I love being able to contribute. But I'm very excited to be able to see stuff that I have helped with go in, like, air. You know, like, I don't even know what that feeling is going to be like that stuff that I've contributed is going to end up, you know, in memory alpha that I've <laughs> resourced for so much. Um, so yeah, I'm just, I think I want to make sure all the fans out there know that like it's, it's possible and, and I will cry and that we can make it. <laughs> yeah. 
That's really exciting. So basically, it's just if if somebody on one of the shows in production has a question, they can just send it to you and and you give your advice on it. So it's just like as needed kind of basis. But some shows are are having me come into the writers' rooms. Some shows are really? you know I'm on the script distribution, so it's like yeah, please you know read our stuff. <clears throat> that they say yeah, here's here's a draft. Please go through it and let us know if there's something wrong. Sometimes it's last minute phone calls that I'm getting right now that are like, oh, we're recording and we need something and this isn't working and you have to explain this to us <laughs> right now um, and come up with a new line of dialogue. So so for some of them, it is a very interactive process. And I'm sorry, I can't share more, but I'm really oh, excited totally understand. about um, what's coming down the line. To, to completely understand, you know, and, but um yeah, I mean, maybe when some of these things air and you've contributed to it, uh, I'll have to interview. We have a number of shows on Trek FM. We actually have one for Picard and we'll probably, probably have ones for other shows. So maybe as things come up, we can ask you about them. So. Awesome. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's probably a fun feeling to have like this window into what's going on. But at the same time, like you can't share it. <laughs> but, <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Which is like it is the nature in Hollywood. You know, you go around and, and people are like, oh, yeah, cool. What are you working on? I can't talk about it. Yeah. What are you working Some on? Some Star oh, Trek stuff. <laughs> I just can't say any more about it than that. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah, that's pretty interesting. Erin, I feel like um, we should have this deal where if you're off sick for some reason or unavailable, you should say, but I've got this friend, Joe, he's a science teacher, you know, <laughs> he, he can consult. That'd be right, cool. right. Yeah, exactly. Please keep me in mind. Yeah, that's Do awesome. It. All right. <laughs> okay, um, there's something I, I've got a confession to make. I left something out of the outline um, intentionally, and Uh-oh. it's the, the quick fire round for Erin, the Scotland edition. No. So, very, very quickly, Erin, please answer these 10 homework. questions. <laughs> I know, but like, you, we didn't want you doing too much homework. We don't want it to be too prepped. That's so, fair. question one favorite Scottish food? Oh, haggis pakora, hands down. That was the oh, first thing nice. I ordered when I, I landed. I had that the other night when I was out for dinner. That's you. awesome. Good answer. because cool. I can't have it over here. <laughs> I know, because it's been banned since 1971. We yep. talked about that last week. Oh, crazy. Question two. This is not going fast enough. Glasgow. West End or Merchant City for a night out? Uh, West End, because I can stumble home easily. Good answer. Um, question three. When are you visiting Scotland again? Hopefully in 2021. I was just there four months ago, so my liver's still recovering. <laughs> no, I can't. I bet. Um, mine is in a constant state of recovery. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And yeah, do you know, it's that a Scottish <laughs> cycle thing. Um, question four. What's traditionally placed on the head of the Wellington statue in Royal Exchange Square? A traffic cone. Ah, yes. Um, question five. Blue Lagoon, yes or no? Uh, no, not by scene. Thank you. Um, it's a really bad fish and chip shop. If they're listening, I'm sorry, but yeah, I had food poisoning once from it. Yeah, what is the, the telephone? I know. Um, question six. What is the Glasgow dialing code on the telephone? Uh, uh, 141. Yes, 0141. Good. Um, question seven. Where is the Helenman's umbrella? I don't know this one. What? Helenman's umbrella. Helenman's. I'm learning so much about things I've never heard of before. I'm drawing a blank. You're going to have to remind me. Okay. Okay. Send the bridge um, over Central Station. Oh, okay. All right. Well, at least can I get there? I can get there. But Queen Street Station was my one I went Okay. That's it. (laughs) That's no judgment. Weaseled out of that one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 
Question eight, true or false, Glasgow means dear green place. Yes, true. True, yes, that is true indeed. Question nine, what is the name of the park near to the University of Glasgow that shares its name with a guy who has a temperature scale named after him? Kelvin, Kelvin Grove Park. Kelvin Grove Park, yes, yeah. nice. And question 10, who is the best Scottish Earl Grey host? <laughs> that would be my good friend, Joe. <laughs> yes, well done. You scored a million. <laughs> thank you, yeah. thank you. Even though Joe, I know I scored nine out of 10. Yeah. And so, so, so Aaron, we when, whenever we've done interviews, Joe tries to make like a Scottish connection with, with the person who's on. You have far and away exceeded the <laughs> deepest Scottish connection that Joe has found so far. I miss it a lot. There. <laughs> yeah. I was there for three and a half years and Joe, I promise oh, the wow. next time I'm there now, I know how to get in touch with you. So we'll have some haggis pakora. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's do pictures, that. Let's get, <laughs> let's get drunk in the haggis pakora at like three in the morning. That'd be cool. And record I'm so excited. A, yeah. A drunk haggis filled podcast. Yeah. Oh yeah. Indeed. <laughs> yes. An Earl, an Earl Grey special. Cool. So I suppose we have to move into the, 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 why we're here and talk about the science of the next generation with Dr. Erin McDonald, who's right in front of me on the screen. Um, so, Erin, um, we have an online listeners group on Facebook called the Babel Conference, and we had some of our members send in some questions. So the first question comes from Alan W. McDonnell, and he says, I'm curious to hear her view on Class M planets around subgiant stars. Most studies concentrate on just dwarf class stars like the sun, but many types of subgiant star last long enough to allow evolution to take place on outer planets that fall into the new life zone once the dwarf age ages into a subgiant. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> what are your thoughts on that, Erin? Um, so just yeah. to clarify, when we say dwarf class stars, what we really mean are just sort of main sequence average stars, which are like our sun. And our sun is in the main sequence and it's a G-class star, which is actually a science thing. This is something that the Harvard, as uh, a group of Harvard women back in the early 1900s, came up with a classification, spectral classification for stars. So when we say class G star in Star Trek, that's actually a thing. And so um, class M planets, a classification of planets is a Star Trek thing. And class M planets is kind of just code for habitable. And so as, as Alan mentioned, most of the sort of stories and studies concentrate on main sequence stars and fairly average mass, but then you get into the subgiant phase. So that's when a star has run out of fuel, run out of hydrogen mostly, and it will start to age and it will start to cool off and it will start to grow and get bigger. And as mentioned, it's entirely possible that's still for a long period of time. If you look at sort of the history of evolution on our planet, um, the life of a um, subgiant star is long enough that you could still have some degree of, of evolution on a planet to make it habitable. Um, so it is entirely possible. Um, I think it's, it's fun to talk about. I love the, um, you know, in some of the old Star Trek star chart books, they even have an HR Hertzsprung-Russell diagram that we all studied in Astronomy 101 <laughs> to talk about stellar classification. And it's important just to remember that space is very big and time is just extended. And so it's hard sometimes. I like to joke 
that all astronomers and astrophysicists live in a constant state of existential crisis because time scales are just blips compared to what space is like. I'm just kind of curious related to that question. Like we do see kind of some different kinds of stars in Star Trek, but I mean, do you feel like we get like a good variety or there's room to see a lot of other kinds we've never seen before? Oh, there's room to to see a lot more that we don't really see a lot of. I got to say, though, I mean, I talk about Voyager a lot. I know this is a next gen Uh podcast, but Voyager did have a ton of like different phenomena just because of the nature Mm -hmm. of the show. Right. They were an anomaly show, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and Janeway was a science officer. And so they discovered a lot more of like the content that you get in astronomy 101 and it's true because because they're kind of cutting a wide swath across the delta quadrant they're probably like doing more traveling week to week than in a lot of shows right i think that's right i've been doing a voyager rewatch and they do see like oh this is an interesting kind of star or nebula or planet and here's a weird neutron star like here's a weird plasma thing you know and and that's totally Uh valid Okay, interesting. But yeah, I mean, there's there's room to do stuff, and I hope to contribute something to that. (laughs) That would be very cool. Maybe when we see a subgiant star in one of the upcoming uh, shows, we can say it's evolution started here. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we have another question by Tim Robertson, which is a good friend of mine, and I listened to his podcast, Observer's Notebook, which you guested on. on. Yes. Yes. Excellent. It's all well, connected. So We're all friends. It is. <laughs> yes. So he says to ask you about the star Betelgeuse and what is happening to it. Yes. The real question is when four people are concurrently on a podcast talking about Betelgeuse, where does Betelgeuse show up? <laughs> oh, I thought that. Oh. Then I thought that I thought I'm going to go to a mirror and say, um, what's it, Tony Todd? Yeah. Tony Todd's no. character and Tony Todd's going to appear behind me and <laughs> like, rip out my heart. There's a really easy terrified. solution to this. Betelgeuse takes place in a different timeline than the one we're in. So There you go. Right. <laughs> okay, <See>? sorted. <laughs> you know what's what. Uh, but yeah, no, it's awesome. It's awesome. All astronomers are joking right now of like, it probably won't go off. But we're all constantly grabbing our jackets and checking just in case. <laughs> um, so Betelgeuse is a red giant. It's a, it's a giant star. It's in it's basically Orion's shoulder. And it's always been one that as astronomers and especially in astronomy classes, you point out to students and you say, all right, all those stars in the sky, they're points to us. You, you know, a lot you need a telescope to be able to or at least binoculars to be able to look at. But Betelgeuse was always one that we pointed at because you can distinctly see that it's red and it's very and it's fairly bright. Um, What's been happening. So, again, it's about 700 light years away. So we're seeing the light as it left Betelgeuse 700 years ago. Um, But what's been happening to it is that it's been dimming like a lot. Like people are actually people who aren't amateur astronomers who look up at the stars all the time. People who don't do that are like, that's weird. Isn't that shoulder usually a lot brighter? Like it is distinctively dimmer. And again, with timescales in in astronomy, it can happen here plus or minus 100,000 years. So (laughs) it's so hard to say if it's going to happen tomorrow or not. Um, but we're all- or if it already happened and the light hasn't gotten to us yet, right? Right. I mean, <laughs> when, when we see it supernova, it will have... So we could have all... You know, our entire lifetime, that star could have been dead and we just didn't know it yet. But um, 
I mean, we are feverishly taking notes. Any astronomer who studies, um, you know, supernova and, and all of this stuff is really, really studying it because we've never been at that stage where we can actively study what happens to a star right before it goes supernova, not with that plus or minus 100,000 years. The Chinese did um, astronomers in, I think, 1044, the year 1044, I think 1044, 80% um, confidence level on that number, um, did detect a super, did see a supernova. They saw a star get really, really bright and it remained bright through the night, throughout the day. Um, really cool stuff. It, I highly recommend people look it up because this is one of those things that's really neat when you study um, archaeological astronomy. So you go into like ancient astronomy and you see ancient cultures, whether they were sort of modern astronomers at the time or whether, you know, storytelling cultures, they all still mark down this bright light in the sky. And now we we study it and it's um it's the crab pulsar is the remnant left behind of that in the supernova surrounding that. So we're all just, oh, I it probably won't, but I really, really want it to. <laughs> and, if, and if it did, it's such, I mean, I one of the things that amazes me is Betelgeuse really is an enormous star. Like if it was in our yeah. solar system, I think it would swallow up everything to Jupiter or something yeah. like that, which is insane, right? But if it did actually go supernova, like you, it, w would we see it as like a really bright, light in the sky even though it's 700 light years away oh yeah it would it would be like a, a day star you know it would be wow. one of those things like when we see venus you know when the sun is setting or things like that um i'm sorry i'm recovering from a cold so okay. i apologize <laughs> um but when um when we see uh like when we see venus that's what we would see all the time except where where Betelgeuse is. So even though it's dim now whenever it goes will we or in our future ancestors will read all of our tweets about it and go, man, those people are really excited about that. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, yeah, sounds really exciting, but yeah, you just don't know when it'll happen. <laughs> we just don't know. Yeah. And just to put our listeners' minds at ease, when it does go supernova, we're going to be completely safe. We're not going yeah, to end up like Romulus okay, and getting right? yeah. we're, we're blown okay. away. Yeah. Okay. yeah. yeah. No, that's fine. We're, we're, <laughs> but I was reading also, yeah. I was reading yesterday that it'll be bright enough that it'll cast shadows on Earth. That's Possibly. possible. I, d I haven't read that, but it's bright. I don't know. I, I don't know if it'll be bright enough to do that. I mean, so that's like ask, like when you see shadows from the moon, right? That it yeah, yeah, wouldn't necessarily yeah. cast shadows. But if you have a new moon and the only thing in the sky is, is the stars at nighttime, Betelgeuse may yeah. be bright enough to give off that much light. That's possible. Yeah. I, I don't know. And That'd be you know, awesome. Cool. If it does supernova in our lifetime, I'll have to have you back to talk about it. Well, so. I won't shut up about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So question for you like if it when it does is that going to change the gravitational you know around that i was sort of sort of connecting that to generations yeah you know when he blew up that star that they had to re-alter the gravitational effects yeah totally because right now as you mentioned it's it's huge so it's a it's radius its diameter is massive and it's about out i think about out to where jupiter is and so its presence gravitationally in space-time is much different from what it will be whenever ever it's supernovas, because when it's supernovas, what's going to happen is that there's no more radiation pressure pushing out, and so it all gravitationally collapses in, and then when you can't cram any more into that tiny space, 
all the outer layers are going to continue falling in, hit that crowded space, and then bounce off. So you're going to lose a ton of mass out into space, and then you're going to be left with this really dense core. So yeah, it's sort of gravitational presence will will absolutely change. It won't it, matter to us, but but around yeah, there it will. But yeah. around there, yeah. That's a great Is it question. massive enough it could turn into a black hole after it? I, maybe? I someone does know the answer to that question. Okay. I just don't know it off the top of my head. Um, yeah. Because what's left behind, so there's the Chandrasekhar limit is that that limit between if a massive star dies, which is Betelgeuse, if a massive star dies, it will end up as a neutron star, or if there's enough mass, it will end up as a black hole. And it's about 1.4 to 1.7-ish um, what is left behind. Once you get over about, I think, a mass of like, 1.8 then it will become a black hole um and so yes sm uh, smart people have have that number but it'll be interesting to see it's going to give us so so much data um that's why we we're all really really hoping it goes off amazing <laughs> yeah. so we have another question here from the babel conference from liam kerrigan who asks of all the highly advanced tech in star trek replicators transporters warp drives etc which of these do you think we will actually be able to create, if any, within the next hundred years? That's an awesome question. <laughs> um, so let's stick with those three that were mentioned, the replicators, transporters, yeah. and warp drives. Um, uh -huh. I think replicators, we will be able to get to something like that in a hundred years because 3D printing is like not far off from that. It takes a long time and you got to code it in. But let's just imagine, you know, we have that supercomputing ability and we have more materials research and they're able to speed up. I can see replicators being a thing. Um, I'm sure we will still struggle with getting our Earl Grey to the correct temperature, but you know, we'll, we'll work on that. Um, warp drive. I really want to hit by 2063, like so badly, but I, I'm really, the issue with that is that in order to have warp drive, you need to be able to manipulate space time. You have to be able to build a bubble of space time around a, a ship. Mathematically, we figured that out. Um, I did it when I was bored and procrastinating my thesis, sitting me in my apartment in the West End of Glasgow and, <laughs> and watching a lot of Star Trek so I didn't have to write my thesis. And I, you know, worked on the calculation for warp drive because I could. And, and other people have as well. And so um, the issue with that is that in order to manipulate space time, you have to need, you have to have a ton of energy. So that's really where our next breakthrough has to be. We've already detected space-time itself with the gravitational wave detectors, which is what I did my research in. Um, but in order to actually achieve that, we have to be able to manipulate space-time using energy. And so that's probably beyond, unless we have like a huge breakthrough, that's probably not going to hit the 2063 mark. Um, and then transporters, unfortunately, are not they do break the laws of physics. They break Heisenberg's uncertainty principle of knowing where every particle actually is. And Star Trek has a Heisenberg compensator on the transporter path to be able to compensate for Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. But we haven't figured out how to do that in science yet at all. Yeah. And I think also I would think the problem is that, I mean, not only making sure you know, like, where all the particles are and what speed they're traveling at or what they're doing. But like a, a human being, a person like has all of these interconnected things that allow <laughs> right. them to live. And like, what happens if you kind of like disconnect that and then try to reconnect that? It feels like you'd have difficulty making that work. Right? Yeah. I definitely yeah. sympathize with Hoshi's transporter 
fear <laughs> and and Barkley's transporter phobias because um yeah I mean I've I've talked about transporter technology a lot and what the canon sort of explanation is because it's a little bit all over the place based on what kind of story they want to tell you end up with two Rikers or you hide your pattern buffer you know it's it's kind of all over um whether you move the particles or just recreate yourself. So it's like, is it a mass genocide machine? <laughs> is it, you know, is it, what is a human being? And then you get into philosophy and then we all end up with headaches and crying about the nature of our own existence. So yeah, and that's a really long episode, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think I've said before, like out of all the stuff we see in Star Trek, I actually think the transporter is the most unlikely. Like for warp drive, yeah, maybe we can find the right kind of exotic energy or whatever that's that's finding that stuff but just i don't know making sure that you keep the integrity of something as complex as yeah. a human being from one place to another i ha i actually personally think that's the one we might never see but, yeah and the physics yeah. behind it too is just like the math checks out for warp drive there's just mm -hmm. leaps and bounds in in technology they have to make to get there but physics the rules aren't broken for warp drive um, but yeah, there's there so many rules broken for a yeah, So maybe in the future we'll have a warp drive, but you have to take shuttles, you know, from yeah. ship to ship or to the planet. You know, yeah, I, I could live with that. We still got to wait at the airport. <laughs> it's just the spaceport. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to wonder how aliens do it when they abduct people, though. <laughs> That's for another podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. Um, I think out of all three of them, warp drive is the one that. I understand the most. It just seems to fit. I think because I've, I've known about it for so long. And you heard um, my excellent explanations at conventions. Exactly. So. Yeah. <laughs> and that's helped. Plus being a scientist also that helped. Right. Um, but it just seems to work in my head. And that there's no reason why when you um, kind of mutually annihilate matter and antimatter, then focus it through the dilithium crystals and produce warp plasma and then feed them into your your nacelles and you've got your Cochrane generators and that produces yeah, a warp field. It, it, it just seems so really straightforward. Why aren't we all getting together to make it right now? It sounds easy, Joe. Right. <laughs> we do have that much titanium. Uh, <laughs> and those yeah. dilithium I mean, that's a problem. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You need that catalyst. Oh, but you're right. Like there, mm -hmm. there is, we've put so much thought and so much explanation over the decades of Star Trek into warp drive that it is well thought out. And I love mm -hmm. it. I love it. <laughs> You're in good company then. Good. <laughs> um, I've got another question from Paul Gilliland who says, how long before I can get a few phaser rifles in my collection? <laughs> good. So yeah, technology of phaser rifles. I haven't really gone into those a lot um, because so there's like disintegrate mode, right? That we've seen. There's like stun mode. There's kill mode. And having all of those different modes in one little weapon that you put on your belt next to vital organs <laughs> yeah, raises a lot of questions. I, 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 so actually, I think one of the interesting things, like if you're just talking about a phaser in general and using some kind of like focused energy beam as, as a weapon, the, the U.S. military has already started doing some experiments with something like that. Right. And and, it, and I think I saw like a, a video they had put together where, you know, there's some missile or projectile that's launched and they're aiming this thing and it and it kind of points some kind of like laser beam at it. And you can't, you know, see it. That wouldn't actually right. happen. But like it just gets knocked down by that. So I'm like, we already kind of have the rudiments of that. So that feels like something maybe we'd have 
in a hundred years. Right. And a lot mm-hmm. of those things. I'm oh, sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say a lot of it too, is like when we see it in science fiction, we see the, the beam, like you said, yeah, in that's... science fiction, we see it, which really means that it's like plasma, which is superheated gas, not necessarily mm. light, like yeah. photons. Um, right. But, uh, but yeah, carry on. Cause if you, Oh, I was going to say, because if you have like a laser pointer and you point it at a screen, you don't see like the whole beam of light, right? Right. Unless there's something in between like, you know, dust or something like that, that it can reflect off. But it's just easier to look at it in Star Trek like, oh, the beam's going over there. Whereas in reality, it would probably, you wouldn't see anything until it hit the target. But Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Depending on what it, what technology it uses. If it's plasma, then mm. you'll see it. You know, if it was we, plasma, I don't think you could stun the person then. Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. <laughs> if it's plasma, you're not going to get a stun. Yeah, <laughs> and you're not going to yeah. want to carry it on your belt. Right. I guarantee that. <laughs> of course, like phasers work um, using lasers and particle beams that use nadions. Nadions, yeah, whatever that is, yes. of course. And they're, like, they're, they're kind of entangled together yeah. to make a phaser. I would just really like a phaser for like around the house. Yeah. Just for like packages that are that arrive that are really hard to get into, <laughs> or like defrosting your windscreen in the mor- morning. Exactly. Mm. See the many uses. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah um, sure. Those U.S. military um, laser weapons are mm-hmm. called Thels, which is a really cool name. It's a tactical high energy laser. Oh, interesting. And the reason we can't see them is because they're in the X-ray. Nice. Oh, is it X-rays? The EM oh. spectrum, yeah. That's high energy. So, very yeah. powerful, yeah, exactly. And that's why they're used for taking out mortars generally, or in their tests they've been taking out mortars. So. Yeah, interesting. That's cool. Amy? Um, Amy, do you want to do the next one? next? Yeah, we have uh, Jim Stoffel. I'm not, sure if, I'm not sure if Amy's still here. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, here. <laughs> I know, we can't see your video, but we know you're there. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, Dr. Aaron, what are your thoughts on the whole spore drive thing on Discovery? Could it be realistic someday, or is it just good science fiction? So, spore drive. I have a funny story. I have a funny story about spore drive. So, one of the things that the year Discovery was coming out, I was trying to expand more of like my my Dr. Aaron explains the universe stuff to to do it online and and kind of, yeah, branch out a little bit. So I decided to do like a live stream science of discovery as it aired. Um, and yeah, I've, I've scienced and figured out warp drive. And so I was excited to see what they did in discovery. And then they gave me fungus and tardigrades. And I was like, oh man, I'm out of my depth. <laughs> like This is not so, so the, the origins of the spore drive in the writer world come from a scientist who is named Paul Stamets, who believes that there, so there are scientists have discovered like a mycelial network on earth that you have these threads of spores that, that permeate through huge distances. Um, and he extended that to say that there could be a mycelial network in space. I have a problem with that. Yes. So, so um, spores and and space do not mix very well because uh, space is a vacuum with it's not a, a pleasant place for um, organic beings to live because it's a vacuum and there's no air and there's no water. Um, there there is also some you know the reason tardigrades got involved is because tardigrades are awesome little creatures. 
Uh, fans of tardigrades, my friend calls herself a tardigroupie, so you are welcome to steal that because that's my favorite thing ever. <laughs> but tardigrades were taken up in this because they're weird in, you know, they do, they shrivel up when they want to hide. They can live for hundreds of years. They rehydrate, like they can pop back out again. Weird, weird little creatures. Um, and, uh, and then they took a bunch into space and they were like, live little creatures. And 99.99% of them died, <laughs> but there was like 0.01 that did survive. So one little, what a little dude made it. And, uh, and so that kind of was like, tardigrades can survive in space. Um, they 99.9% died. Um, but some did. So, uh, that's kind of how they, they all kind of came into being. Now I like, because I, yes, am science fiction all the time. Um, let's not dismiss it out of hand. Okay. Like you said, subspace, uh, subspace is that idea that we have our trampoline of normal space. It's four dimensional, uh, space plus time. And then subspace is like above and below the trampoline. So if you're using a wormhole or you're, you know, any, any of those things are going to permeate, you know, subspace, we use subspace communications to communicate faster than the speed of light. It's when you're going outside of normal space. And so you can imagine that maybe there's a like subspace network that instead of being a relay that, you know, the Borg or the Herogens or any other species have created, that maybe there's a natural subspace network that seems to resemble mycelial networks. And you can use a space creature that happens to resemble a tardigrade that can exist partially in subspace and partially in normal space that can jump between them. So we can science ourselves out of it a little bit. Um, but yeah, it. I know more about fungus and tardigrades now than I, I ever thought I would. I mean, it's an idea that seems ridiculous, but... I mean, when I think about it, I think, well, maybe you have some super advanced civilization that's actually seeded subspace in this way across all universes. Maybe. Right. But the know. point is, it really has to be subspace. Oh, you yeah. know, it's and it's if it's a fungus in the way we know it. The cool thing, too, that I like because I, I really do try to be really positive about this stuff. So I'm, I'm all about like, let's figure it out. All right. You want a fungus network in space? Let's do it. Um, but uh, the other cool thing you can kind of do with it is, um, you know, it's like those jump drives and, um, and the way that it looks is really interesting because if you, if you zoom way out scale wise and look at our universe, it does kind of look like a fungus network. And I mean, our universe. So Star Trek takes place in a galaxy, um, the Milky Way galaxy. You zoom out of that, you get galaxy clusters. You, we're part of a local group with the Andromeda galaxy and some smaller galaxies in there too. And you zoom further out and you get sort of super groups of, of galaxies and you zoom either, even further out than that. And you see these threads of galaxy clusters that do kind of look like neurons, that kind of look like spore networks. Um, so space, it, nature is weird. And that just happens to be a a shape that nature doesn't hate. And so you can say that, yeah, okay, maybe those galaxy clusters aren't necessarily driven by gravity, but rather a subspace spore network that we can tap into and jump anywhere. Sure. Oh. <laughs> I think the spore drive is my, I love Discovery. Yeah, I, I, I just too. love all Star yeah. Trek. But the spore drive was my biggest problem with it until they said, it was in subspace, so it kind of helped explain yeah. it away because we don't know what subspace is. Exactly. So 
it's like kind of this hidden away in somewhere that we don't know about already. Yeah, it's um, this... and my problem was that they've taken this kind of Earth-based research, so it needed some kind of environment in, on Earth to live on, like those tree networks is at Oregon. Yeah, um, when they've got the fungal networks that are absolutely vast, um, and then they've translated it into space, and it didn't sit quite well with me. So it was kind of a part of discovery that I had to kind of compartmentalise and kind of hide it away. And I was like, okay, I'm watching the rest of the episode, just not that okay <laughs> yeah. nonsense. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's what we do, especially as scientists. I mean, you, you get it. When we were super into science fiction, we do have to kind of sometimes put a story to the side. Mm-hmm. And be like, all right, I'm with yeah. the story. Let's just... And then people ask me how it yeah. works, and so I have to figure that out. <laughs> yeah. It's fine. No pressure. So so yeah. we have uh, one more question from our listeners group. So Liam Smart says, what would Dr. Aaron say is the most egregious science fail in all of Star Trek, not just TNG? So it could be anywhere in Star Trek. Oh, see, I have a hard time with this question. It's a great question, but uh, because I try to be so relentlessly positive, I mean, we kind of touched on it, though. Like, you know, the spore drive is hard if you're going to take it literally, right? And and how it was first introduced was very literal. Um, that's that's tough. Um, I would say the, uh, the transporter thing, like we talked about, you get into those ethical sort of implications of that. But I got to say, I mean, putting my sort of squishy biology hat on... Um, I would say the most egregious fail is the discussion of like what humans will evolve into and where we evolve from in Star Trek. So they have a few episodes of there's the TNG where they all sort of evolve or de-evolve into different things. Mm, like yeah, yeah, yeah. humans and spiders branched off long ago. There's not a common you if you're going all the way back to humans humans didn't evolve from spiders. Humans and spiders evolved way back from other things. There's not a kind of common thing that we would look like. And then the future evolution. I mean, we joke about it and I love it. And it did. My joke about it didn't make it into the Star Trek.com video about warp drive. It's just threshold, <laughs> which is what happens yeah, when you that, go that, above warp. 10. That's see, that's the one that I have the biggest issue with. I mean, not only because like it turns you into a lizard, but like warp <laughs> 10, this concept of infinite velocity being everywhere at all times, that just seems so like patently ridiculous. Well, like... so yeah, so the, the <laughs> idea behind it, right, is that if with warp drive, and I'm going to do my, my 30 second explanation of warp drive, is that you build nothing, you can't go faster than the speed of light on the surface of space time, but nothing says space time itself can't go faster than the speed of light. So you wrap a bubble of space time around your ship and that pushes you faster than the speed of light. You want to go even faster, um, you build another bubble, and that's warp factor two. You build another bubble around that, and you exponentially sort of increase your speed until eventually you will wrap all of space and time around your ship. And what happens? Terrible episodes happen. <laughs> and uh, you future oh, so, evolve so, into lizards. <laughs> so really, warp 10 is wrapping like a bubble of space time around the entire universe? It's where you've basically, yeah, ex- because you're exponentially increased, right? If you imagine this, every time you build a bubble, you're going to need an exponentially greater bubble like of space time to wrap around your ship. And so, yeah, that idea that there is going to eventually be a limit to that, which is you can't wrap all of space and time around your ship. So the way they took about that is kind of okay. Um, But then the, uh, 
the future evolving in the lizard. Yeah, the the de evolving again, right? Yeah. <laughs> It's rough. <laughs> yeah. But I did, I thoroughly appreciated that Star Trek liked my joke about that and they embraced it. <laughs> and they left it in there when I kind of mentioned, it was like, oh, we don't talk about those things. <laughs> so they know it's ridiculous. We all, there's, there's just some goofy yeah. episodes that we can't get past. And I've seen Threshold more times than probably anyone just because it keeps coming yeah. up. And the crazy thing is, I think it's a big science fail, but I actually really enjoy the episode because it's so wacky. It is. It's so weird. And it has so many great lines. Like, I love Janeway's line where she's like, what makes you think it was your idea? <laughs> it's a great line. <laughs> right? um, yeah. And actually, there is a funny thing you can dig around on the internet. I think the, the legacy of it will exist, but someone I may or may not know was trying to expose predatory journalism where you pay to get a scientific paper published. And uh, this person wrote a scientific article about Threshold written in Technobabble uh, so deep. I remember seeing that. <laughs> and that, they, got it pub they got it published, right? And it got published as a scientific journal that is published by Zimmerman, Paris, Kim... Torres yeah. at all. <laughs> but what was it? They were trying to expose like junk science journals that would accept anything, right? right? That accept anything if you pay like 80 bucks, right? <laughs> and uh, yeah. yeah, and so they, they got it published and you can find it and it's hilarious. Um, and it's like the, yeah, effect of evolution on extre or extreme is celerity's effect on evolution. Celerity being uh -huh. a really fancy word for high speeds. And uh, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. I love it. I love people who have the time to do that. I love people who can laugh at themselves and find a funny way to uh, expose really serious stuff by writing a science paper about Threshold. Yeah. <laughs> I can't uh, believe I didn't know about this. Oh, yeah. You got oh, to look it up. I'll see gotta, if I can you, dig it out. You've got to look it up because it is Failed just hilarious that they did that. And and I mean, it seems like on the surface, like, oh, yeah, they're using all the right language. But if you look at it, they're talking about Threshold. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, what? That was it. Because someone else did that, too, with... Um, um, midichlorians they took a scientific paper and just replaced mitochondria with midichlorians and got it published so um for you know 80 bucks or whatever so anyway check your resources that's the important thing <laughs> predatory journalism is a thing um and ask yahoo is not a way to answer science questions either <laughs> so thanks to all our listeners for their questions um it's a really good discussion uh, let's Something that occurred to me was to talk about how science, how our personal understanding of science affects our enjoyment of Star Trek. And I know for me, I've been watching Star Trek since I was five or something with my watching reruns of TOS with my mum and through watching TNG as a teenager. Um, so for me, my brain, my developing brain has just accepted all the science and it's been fine. However, as a, a science teacher, maybe not a science expert, but somebody that knows kind of the laws of physics and knows about science, as more new Star Trek comes out, I find it more difficult to accept the, the science that they're trying to sell me. And, I, and I'm more and more having to kind of, kind of shove my science knowledge to one side in order to enjoy the episodes. So I wonder what it's like for you, Erin, maybe in a similar position. I know you've been come to Star Trek a bit later in life, but 
Yeah. Sorry, you're still super young, but... Um, yeah. No, you know. it's, a, it's a really good question. And I think, too, some of that is where um, it's from... This, it's more, I think, a product of the storytelling that they had so much material at the beginning that they can mine um, to tell their stories. And then as stories and this universe that they've created of Star Trek carries on, they're looking for new cool ways to tell new stories. And some of that is finding weird fringe science like Paul Stamets in a mycelial network uh, to try to bring that in. Um, and then, you know, but some of it too is just like, we want to find interesting ways to tell stories. And that's where I think, I mean, credit to them that they wanted to bring in someone like me to say like, okay, we don't want to get too far out just because we're trying to do something new. So now we're having to even further push science because we've kind of mined existing science. Um, you know, I think there's still a lot of cool stuff out there. Writers just don't have the time. Like a lot of us, they, we just don't have the time to go through and actually do a lot of research into the current science that is going on. Um, so I think the other issue too is that now there's so much content out there. There's so many science fiction shows. And part of the way to stand out is to have um, some level of scientific realism. So writers find themselves having to be like, all right, do we compete in this realm where we have to compete against realistic science in our stories? Or do we go into the deep storytelling realm and just kind of find a way to, to get some nuggets of techno babble in there. And so I think it's just, there's, there's so much content out there. There's so many ways to tell stories. And the more that I've been exposed to the writing process, I've respected it a lot more. And I understand how hard it is to get science in because they want to just tell a story. You know, and then it's like, oh, God, we're going to have to explain this, you know, or like maybe we just don't explain it. And for me, sometimes, I mean, there's stories that people I'm not going to tell you don't tell your story. There are some stories that are so out there that in, I'm not, you know, not just Star Trek, but just all all sorts of science fiction that I'm like, just don't explain it. Just don't explain it. Sometimes those are the better episodes, you know, where you just say this, hey, something weird's happening over there. We're going to check it out and we're going to get our story, our character driven forward and then not worry about the science. And that's fine. It's, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I think a show like Deep Space Nine would do that a lot. Like, here's an orb of time. It takes you into the past. That is <laughs> yeah. all there is to it. Yeah. And we're going to go to the past and have this adventure, right? Like, yeah. I mean... Don't ask you know, me any more questions. You, yeah. you could you could definitely have that, uh, that approach. And, like, it's interesting you asked this question, Joe, because, like... I'm by no means a scientist, but I've read a lot about different scientific concepts because I'm interested in it. And sometimes I will come up some, with against something like the de-evolving or, you know, warp 10 or whatever, where I'll be like, oh, okay, that's, I can't take it that far. But then there's other things where I was like, well, maybe we could be okay with that. But I'm also uh, curious, like, Amy, when you see like science in Star Trek, like what's your reaction to it? Are there things where you're like, wow, that's really ridiculous? Or is it like, oh, that's, that's fine. And I can just keep going. You know, when I watch Star Trek, I'm just going along for the ride. Um, and with my limited understanding of science, I just sort of accept it in the terms of, yeah, it's going to help the story. So just sort of like you're saying, it's the story that's I'm intrigued with and the creativity of them 
coming up with some kind of explanation for it that sounds sciencey. So it, it fools me, hook, line, and sinker every time. <laughs> but I think like the the best, you know, I think we've talked about threshold and we talked about spore drive and and all of those things. And the reason that we struggle with them so much is because they did explain them and they did try to explain them. Things I love the Heisenberg compensator. I've got to find the net diagram and get that tattooed somewhere because I love the Heisenberg compensator because it's just a quick, like we acknowledge we're breaking physics. We're in the future. We solved it. That's it. We don't need to explain it. I don't need to explain, mm. you know, that was like an old joke that Mike Okuda said. It was like, how does the Heisenberg or how does the, yeah. How does the Heisenberg compensator work? Very well. Thank you. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. know? It does and its job. It yeah. does its job. It works fine. Um, thank you for asking. And, uh, and so you get into more trouble when you try to explain things than if you just don't, like you said, the time orb and we haven't, you know, we haven't, we kind of have been a little bit, not harsh, but you know, we've been critical, turned our critical eye onto spore drive, but we haven't talked about time crystals. We didn't need to explain those, you know, they, they're there, they're time crystals. Yeah. It, it's an interesting <laughs> question because yeah, I think sometimes you see something, it doesn't necessarily need an explanation, but if they can like, you know, do the trick of like having the thing and having an explanation and being like, yeah, maybe that's kind of reasonable. I think that's, I think it's really hard to do, but if they yeah. can do that, it's amazing. I think they're trying to do that. Like, let's explain it a little bit and see if where we can get, but yeah, I could see that. Yeah, and it's really, you just don't want to say something wrong. That's the hardest part. Yeah, I suppose um, if you do explain it, you risk alienating like the people with a knowledge of science. And, yeah. and if you don't explain it, nobody's getting alienated and people, the audience will make it fit for themselves and come up with an explanation they feel comfortable with. So yeah. everybody might have a different way to make it fit. Yeah. Um, to kind of ensure that they still enjoy it. So that's, a good that's interesting. So please, Star Trek, do never explain anything in future. That'd be, <laughs> no, because be they don't have Make a us... job. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. <laughs> no, I mean... Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it is It is true. It's, some, it's just, it's a balance because those nuggets of real science are fun, you know, and those of us who are scientific, we love that. You know, when they throw something in there that's sort of accurate, I love that. And so, mm. yeah, it's hard. It's hard. It's why. Yeah. So um, we're depending yeah. on you to have more and more accurate explanations as we go. <laughs> no pressure, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, but, I'll be watching. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone will. But, it, but it's also probably something like where they're like, yeah, we're proposing this or that thing. And you have to be like, okay, maybe if you tweak it a little bit. Because I think there are some things where it's like, well, maybe if they tweaked it a little bit, it would feel more realistic. And yeah. they just I didn't know, you know. Absolutely. So. It's hard. It's a hard, it's a hard business. People are like science, people who are scientists who want to be science consultants. Sometimes it's hard to appreciate how difficult that job is because we love the science and we want there to be correct science in there. And sometimes you have to let it go. You have to just say, oh, all right, just don't, I'm just going to make sure you don't say anything wrong. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, they had really funny, just quick side note, you can edit out if you want, but <laughs> is uh, the show Voltron uh, on Netflix, the reboot cartoon, the space-time explanations in it are brilliant. And I was deeply obsessed with this show. The wormhole, the way they talk about wormholes, faster than light travel, it's the only pop sci, like popular sci-fi show I've watched ever address time dilation, that they miss an event because they miscalculated their time dilation when they were traveling faster than the speed of light. 
And then they said that they arrived back home and they said, we're back to our star system, the Milky Way galaxy. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I cried. Like, no joke. I actually just burst yeah. into tears because it was everything was so right. It was great, except that. for that line. One line just <laughs> wow. ruined it all. So anyway. Yeah, but that's a, yeah. another explanation. Just don't say it wrong, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah sometimes it doesn't take much to... Because yeah. you'll be absorbed in an episode and then they'll say something and you're like, oh, I'm back in my living room. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Why? Why did you do that? Yeah. <laughs> 100%. Oh, yeah. Cool. So the next thing that I want to bring up, focusing purely on TNG, is our favourite science moments. Whether it was a one point in TNG we thought yes that is a great piece of science and I love it. Erin you go first. Oh me go first oh yeah you're the guest (laughs) I you know okay I love the episode and I forget the name this was where my homework this is where I air myself as like a solid B plus student because I did my homework to a B plus level because I forget the name of the episode but the episode where there is a planet, it's a very environmental episode where they have gone warp speed. Too many people have gone warp speed and now the fabric of space-time is too fragile there. Mm-hmm. Force of nature. Force of nature. That's it. Thank uh, you. I, I think I said it first. I, you know, that was a <laughs> solid tie. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, yeah, because I love that concept and it was something I hadn't thought about before about the ability for space time to become more fragile, the more you travel faster than the speed of light in it. And that's kind of true. If you think about the reason gravity is so relatively weak is because space time as like a material is really tough. So we always talk about that trampoline, but think about instead of it being a trampoline, think of it being like really tight webbed netting. And that's hard to manipulate. And so if you do have that ability to warp a bubble, you are going to have to slowly kind of stretch that space time. And it is over doing that multiple, multiple times. It's like washing your favorite, you know, jumper over and over and over again. It's going to start to get more and more slack. And that's exactly what they talk about in that episode. And I love that concept. I love it. Yeah, it, it is It is pretty interesting. Of course, they only come back to it like a little bit and maybe they've fixed it or whatever later. But but yeah, you would almost think like they need these like roving repair crews to repair space time right. in certain areas, right? Or something. <laughs> yeah. That would Now, that would be an interesting series. Like let us follow the space time repair crews throughout the galaxy. <laughs> right, right. And, and the weird time travel stuff that happens as they try <laughs> yeah. to do that. Exactly. So. That's awesome. I want to see that spaceship that's got giant space-time knitting needles, yeah. <laughs> and they just and they just like do that, like as they warp through space, fixing it behind themselves. That'd be, That'd be awesome. Yeah. Uh, Justin, what be you? I mean, it's such an interesting question because you know we've talked about things where the, the science is like, eh, I don't know so much about that. And again, I'm not a scientist myself, so I don't know. I I think that TNG might have been the first star trek series to really get into time loops and there's something that i think is really cool about i mean you see it a little bit in the first season episode we'll always have paris but of course a lot more in cause and effect which is one of my favorite episodes but i just kind of like that instead of it being like let's go to a point in the future and have an adventure there let's go into the past they keep repeating stuff and they have to figure out a mystery so probably time loops are my favorite kind of science thing in uh in tng yeah 
Amy, what about you? Sort of going along the same lines with the time and the bubbles, I'm going to push two episodes together, The Traveler and Remember Me, because I like that science idea of, okay, we're going to, like you said, Aaron, create this bubble, like you said, warp drive, and you have a bubble and that's warp one, a bubble around that, that's warp two. So I like that idea. And then in Remember Me, like Beverly's stuck in it and the bubble is collapsing. So I like those two episodes for science. Cool. And I know I'm a physicist, but I'm going to choose some chemistry. And it's in it's like one of my favorite discussions that they have in Hollow Pursuits, where Wesley and LaForge and Barclay, and there's another guy called Duffy, and they're talking about the basically the future of the periodic table and what elements and compounds might be causing the, the ship to fall apart. Um and I, I think I just like the fact that in the future they've discovered more and more elements and produced more and more compounds. So we know we're up to 118 elements on the periodic table just now. Where what is the future hold? Are we going to get to that kind of range of stability where we get um, like after what, transuranic elements that are super stable and we have develop a whole new type of chemistry and materials science? That's so awesome! That's super exciting. I forgot yeah, about that's my that. That is really cool. I mean, it's the idea of like dilithium and tritanium and all of this stuff. Like we, they pull those numbers out, but really, cause dilithium can't be bonded to be a dye molecule. It's, um, so you think about it as a separate element. Like it's, it's actually just an element that is called dilithium. Um, and what the components of that are and why it's a good catalyst for matter, anti matter, antimatter reactions is, is fun to think about. That's so cool. I forgot about that episode. I love that episode. I forgot about that. Go rewatch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think my favorite element is neutronium or whether or not it's an element, but I think theories suggest that there's ideas out there that suggest that in the core of Jupiter, you oh, might yeah. have like metallic hydrogen, Yeah. which will essentially um, be, what would that, what would that, uh, yeah. It's just it's, weird. It's crazy to think about, yeah. Yeah, we can't we can't replicate that in a lab. That level of density and that level of materials, we just can't replicate. The pressure, yeah. Yeah, it's cool. It's crazy. Uh, okay, let us talk about what we've discovered since TNG was aired. So I'm huh. thinking you're working gravitational waves. We've got things like CRISPR gene editing, um, where there's research in, into using the GPS satellite network to detect dark matter and dark energy. There's a whole host of new things that we've discovered in the last 30 years. And I was wondering how would they unfold if they brought back a TNG episode with current science? Oh, that what is would the writers do? with a good question. What would, yeah. I so Erin, I, I figure given your areas of research, gravitational waves is that's probably going to be something the first thing I'm going that's to going to appear about. in an episode. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Go for um, it. Well, I love because TNG, they actually do encounter gravitational waves. <laughs> in one scene, they're all like, you know, Captain, we're coming up on gravitational waves. And then they all kind of brace and shield up at the, the front. And then they all kind of ride it like a like a wave, like a boat. I love it. Um, that is not how gravitational waves work <laughs> at all. Uh, what they do is they distort space time. And so there's that in itself is a storytelling element, right? That you have this idea that you could be in an area with a high gravitational waves and try to protect the ship. 
but that you do have these distortions of space and time that would 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 do damage to your ship and so i just i think that's fascinating i think um as you mentioned dark matter um that uh to bring in dark matter not as like an offhand comment but to actually try to explore that a little bit more and then you mentioned CRISPR and gene editing. There's a lot there. But yeah, I would definitely go down the gravitational waves route. I will get gravitational waves in scripts, whether it's Star Trek or something else, man. <laughs> You'll be like, oh, she consulted on that, obviously. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll know we'll it was you. That's yeah. awesome. Um, cool. I think people think of gravitational waves and they think of something that's really super powerful. Mm -hmm. um, but I think when we first detected gravitational waves, was it not? two black holes billions of light years away with like a combined mass of 60 solar masses yep. colliding oh, really? and we detected the infinitesimally small um, ripples of space time yeah. here with a super massive piece of apparatus. I went to a lecture um, within the last couple of years with his Professor Jim Huff. Oh, Jim. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and he gave a public engagement lecture on gravitational waves. So yeah, Glasgow that's basically where I've learned it from. Player. They, Glasgow has been around gravitational waves from the beginning. They, that whole team, Jim, Jim Huff was one of the first people to work on the new gravitational wave detectors, even the old style of detecting them. And they are, you know, we can only detect the most insanely powerful events in the universe, which is black holes colliding and uh or stars exploding all of those things are are incredibly huge events that uh we as you said only detect here on earth as fractions of the size of an atom those distortions happening it's so cool <laughs> it's nuts the universe sounds like a really dangerous place <laughs> space is i think scary. we should just hunker <laughs> hunker down with a blanket and watch star trek yeah, exactly. be quite content <laughs> Yeah, wow. With you. We just need our hollow program, so good. Oh yeah, that'd be that'd be that'd be awesome. <laughs> um, okay, so let's move on to our final thoughts. Erin, this is just uh, the point at which we did talk about everything we've talked about in the episode and what we felt about it. So um can I put you in a an awkward position to go first again as a guest? <laughs> yeah. No, it's fun. You know, I, I don't I don't really talk a lot about TNG just because um it didn't necessarily dive into science as much as shows like as much as Voyager or Enterprise did. And so it's interesting to actually dig into it and, and find those episodes. So it's been fun to kind of be like, nope, you can't talk about Aaron, you can't talk about Voyager. <laughs> We're talking about TNG. And so it's been really good for me to dig through those episodes and, and hear your perspective on it as well. It's, it's interesting. And there is some stuff there that I got to, Got to go back and revisit. Cool. Well, if you want to critique my knowledge of science, I think this Science and TNG episode is part six of our series Noted. where we've gone through each of the seasons and talked about, well, I've talked about all the science and TNG and what we currently know about it. Joe so just brings us please. stuff and we react to it as how it's been before. <laughs> yeah, it's like, awesome. it's like Joe's science story time. Um, and I tell Justin and Amy about fun sciencey stuff. <laughs> that's amazing. So you have to go listen and then email me and say, Joe, that's either very good or yeah. mm, will... did you ever <laughs> attend university? <laughs> really? <laughs> that's awesome. No, I will definitely go back and, and you get credit when it makes it into one of my talks. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, Amy, final thoughts? 
Yeah, again, <laughs> I just usually am a spectator here, listening and learning. And I'll tell you, I have learned a lot. And I say that when Joe, but Aaron, I really enjoyed listening to your explanations and how you make it so relatable and that I can understand it. So this has been wonderful. I've loved uh, my favorite things. We're learning that the class G star is real, but the class M planet isn't. And I really loved learning about Beetlejuice and the whole concept of this used to be bright and now it's dimming and the excitement around it. So you really made me excited for something that I didn't even know I cared about. So thank That's you. Awesome. I'm so glad. Justin, what would be your final thoughts? Well, I always love talking about science and TNG, but but Aaron, it's just been wonderful to have you here to, to give your perspective and all that you talk about. And, and there was a lot of interesting things to think about. I mean, I think I've talked about this on some of these science episodes before, but I think we're on the cusp of a lot of like big breakthroughs and things that are really going to change a lot of things. And we're also getting toward the point where we're getting better at, you know, detecting other planets elsewhere and maybe in the not too distant future we can detect atmospheres or maybe life signs or something so it's like we're on the the cusp of kind of seeing where these things go and what star trek has to say about it so that's really exciting and it was just you know great to get your perspective on it for sure definitely yeah no it was really good having you on today um this like the science episodes that we do um it's always just me telling Justin and Amy stories. Whatever. Um, Justin is very intelligent and shares a lot of science. Joe. Lot of Amy, about it, don't put yourself down. You're very, Amy is a high school math teacher. Oh, so awesome. Amy, uh, Amy no, is I'm very, I'm a good very... student during these episodes. But I'm just saying exactly. Justin and Joe both school me. Okay. Okay. So yeah, no, I really enjoyed doing the episodes, but having like a fellow scientist, if I can put myself... <laughs> Can I raise myself up to your level? Um, it's just been really super fun um, having you on. And the fact that you're also a fellow Scot helps as well. Yeah. I say anyone from Glasgow starts with a base level of like a plus one to science, given the history of that city. Like Kelvin, all, all of them, all of them are from Glasgow. They're all from Glasgow. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so you get that plus one bonus boost to science from just being Glaswegian. And it's great to to talk to you about the West End again. So apologize to all your viewers or listeners about it. But yeah, we're going to geek out about Glasgow for a long time. <laughs> yeah, you know, that should just be an excuse for people to jump on a plane or a bus or a train or whatever and come visit Glasgow because it's Amazing. literally, I know Edinburgh is the capital, but Glasgow is just a really fun cosmopolitan city. It's where it's at. Now, so yeah, do it. <laughs> So, Erin, thanks for coming on Earl Grey. Uh, where can listeners find you online? Um, well, I'm most active on Twitter. Uh, usually, live. I, you can't find me live tweeting um, science of Star Trek episodes. It's at Dr. Erin Mack, D-R-E-R-I-N-M-A-C. And uh, that's also my handle on Instagram. And my handle on Facebook is the Tattooed Gravity Girl. And then my website is erinpmacdonald.com, where you can find my next live appearances. I'm going to be on the Star Trek cruise next, and then I'll be announcing my other conventions for 2020. And Yay, I'll be there hey! on the cruise with you. <laughs> Excellent. I'm doing, uh, Joe, you'll appreciate this, I will be doing a Ode to Montgomery Scott Science and Whiskey with Dr. Aaron. So we'll have to maybe take that to... Uh, 
Vegas or something nice. as well. But yes, yeah, so um, so yep, easy to find. I hope to meet some of you at conventions. Definitely come up and say hi, or at the very least on the Twitterverse. So, um, Erin, thank you again for being on Earl Grey and talking about the science in TNG. Thank it's you. been it's been amazing. Yes, it's been it wonderful it's been having her. Thank you so much. Amy's got a preview of next week's episode. Well, next week we are going to continue our lost episodes. I know it's been a while, listeners, but we have a special guest, Brian Malosh, uh, who submitted some uh, scripts. And so it fits right in with our lost episodes. And so we will be having that next week. So stay tuned. Yeah. And he, well, just to clarify, so he had submitted some scripts like to Star Trek franchise back when they would accept scripts for both TNG and DS9, I think. So it'll be exciting for him to talk about that experience and what he wrote about, right? Well, it's been so much fun talking about more science in TNG with an actual real-life scientist in the form of the amazing Dr. Erin McDonald. But that isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on the network. Here is what you might have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Earl Grey. Oh, let me think. What's an interesting Star Trek sound effect? Phasers? See, that's tough because how do you make a phaser sound? I, I don't know if you can make that with the human. No, I Or you can do photon torpedoes. Choo, choo, choo. I'll, I'll, I'll just be the one that's pew, pew, pew. Oh, pew, pew, pew. <laughs> yeah. The discovery phasers. Okay, cool. Awesome choice. Mm. Uh, and to come back to the point, I think I'm deleting this scene. Literary tricks. What was it that caused him not to be with his Paul immediately after coming out? What was it that made that relationship strange? Yeah. And I think it was that Culber had really lost himself in a lot of ways. And while Paul was his anchor, uh, when he came back to Paul, Paul had learned something by losing uh, you. And I think, he, I think he became the Paul that Hugh needed. And I think that scared you a little bit. Mm-hmm. Until he sort of found himself again. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Because we've never seen all of those hairy mud bots again. <laughs> yes, th- thankfully. <laughs> yeah, uh, I would appreciate the like a mention in history in season three is like, oh yeah, here's this time where the whole galaxy was crawling with these different hairy mud bots yeah. and rounding them up took years. <laughs> you know, That's what I, brought down the Federation. Harry that, that was it. It was hairy mud bots. Harry mud bots. Oh no. The Line, a Star Trek Picard podcast. We got a lot of answers in this episode, which I, was really surprising mm-hmm. to me. So, there, you know, who's Dodge and whatnot. Like, that's a thing I expected to find out in episode 10 going into this right. show, right? And here we are, you know, halfway through episode one, and we know who Dodge is. And I'm like, okay, this is interesting. I'm, you know, that's, that's cool that we're getting a lot of information. But getting that information is opening up more questions. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all of these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop Apple Podcasts app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review that helps others to find the show. You guys want a quick bonus question? Sure. Yeah. 
So if you guys were consultants for the Star Trek franchise, what would you like to consult on? Let's assume that you could have any type of knowledge that I would magically grant to you. What would you want to consult on? Mm. Hmm. Um, like in terms of which like part of the franchise in terms of show? like right now you're a con- science consultant what would you want to consult on if you magically had any possible type of knowledge what would you like to focus on what would you like them to call you yeah. up what would you like them to contact you and say Joe we want to know your opinion on this <laughs> mm, oh that's a really good question wow that um, is it would have to be um it would have to be like Picard and something to do with cybernetics. Ooh, okay. I think, even though I don't have any knowledge no, about I'm that, but you've you granted knowledge. me this. Yeah. Even so, yeah, you're you're an expert zapped on into my brain. cybernetics. So they're going to ask you that. exactly. That's cool. Yeah. Hmm. All right. How about you, Amy? I. Well, if I had the knowledge mm-hmm. which you would grant me, I would like to. Uh, be the expert on set design and functionality. Oh, very cool. Nice. I like that a lot. What about you, Justin? Yeah, so for me, um, I'm trying to think. I mean, like, actually, I I do think that that, uh, if I magically, like, had all this great, like, science knowledge, I'd like to be a science consultant. I think that would be really cool to be able to bring in things that you haven't seen in, in Star Trek. So, so Dr. M. McDonald was talking about some things like time dilation that you really haven't seen much in, in Star Trek. And there's all kinds of, like, weird quantum effects and things. Like, if I was an expert on just, like, real-life bizarre things that happen in nature and making sure to put those in Star Trek, I would kind of love that. So... That'd be my answer. But uh, yeah, Aaron, if you're listening to this part, don't worry. I'm not trying to take your job and I don't magically have that knowledge. You have far more knowledge in these things than I do. It's just a wish. <laughs> so, if... Oh, no, I'm, act- I'm actively trying to steal Aaron's job. <laughs> I want oh, yeah, to be a science noticed. consultant. That's right. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. Right. Joe, That's... Joe has no illusions about that. So mm-hmm. good, yeah. luck. good luck. <laughs> well, if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. If you, you can find our shows on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, YouTube, and most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select or agree that will come right to us and we might read your email on the show. You can also find the network on Twitter and Instagram at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. So Justin, where can people contact you when you're not repairing the space from warp drive travel. Oh, that would be such an interesting job, wouldn't it? Yeah, and all the weird time anomalies you would cause inevitably. Well, when I'm not thinking about doing that, or maybe I am doing it and you don't know it, uh, you can find me elsewhere on the network co-hosting The Line. That's our Star Trek Picard podcast. I co-host that with my friends Chrissy DeClercs-Alagi and Brandon Shamatala. We've already talked about a couple of episodes of Picard, and we're going to talk about every episode in depth. And yes, we do mean in depth because these episodes have been running 
two hours or almost. Um, so you can find me there on the line and you can find me on Twitter. I'm at trekfan4747 where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek and you can find me hanging around the Babel Conference on Facebook. So Joe, where can people contact you when you're not waiting for Beetlejuice to explode and blaze brilliantly in the daytime sky? Can actually wait for that, and we know it's in the northern hemisphere, so that'll be so cool. Can't wait. Oh, you, can't, um, you can't see Beetlejuice in the southern hemisphere. Uh, I don't think so. It's part of Orion, isn't it? So it's. Oh wow! That's, in, yeah, the northern. Sorry for our listeners in the southern hemisphere, <laughs> but sorry, anyway, Liam. You know, plus or minus a hundred thousand years, so it may or may not happen soon. <laughs> exactly. I, when I'm not doing that, you can get me on the Babel Conference. You can tweet me on the Twitter at joeyjoe77uk, or you can email me joepodcasts at gmail.com. Do it, people, please, before I go insane. And Amy, where can people contact you when you're not shooting up your house with your own phaser? <laughs> Just on the stun. <laughs> yes, and stun that wall over there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Makes demolition so what much does easier. Setting due to a wall. I don't think we've ever seen I don't that. Know. Anyway. <laughs> well, when I'm not redecorating and my set design with my phaser, uh, you can find me on the United Federation of Podcasts Network, where I'm hosting all good things with my good friend Patrick Devlin. You can find me on Twitter at Miss Amy Nelson. Uh, but of course, I'm always there in the Babel Conference. Cool. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We like to take this opportunity to recognize our current associate producers, Norman Lau, Michael Huter, Thomas Appel, Chris Trebuzio, Jim McMahon, Joe Keegan, and Justin Ozer. Thank you for supporting Trek FM and especially Earl Grey. So join us next time for another cup of Earl Grey. Great joy and gratitude. Things are only impossible until they're not. Science is for all the cool kids. Mm-hmm.